Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Shared Iron Podcast Series and a special hello to anyone that's maybe joined us for the first time. So our guest today has a voice many of our listeners will no doubt know. Um, he gives a voice and stands up for many in each community and people I suppose that don't really have a voice. He's the ordinary man's person, the ordinary man's voice and um, he's a person that really inspires me and he's also a Liverpool fan, which I am, so I'm kind of that all adds to it. Uh, a big welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast, Mr Phil Kelly, how are you Phil? Uh, great and thanks for uh, the invite to speak on the podcast now, really appreciate it. Not a problem. Um, both of us had a wee bit of um, difficulty getting here tonight, we're recording this in um, Wellington Park Hotel and Northern Ireland's playing the night, so um, we the, the town was kind of chock-a-block. Phil, for the benefit, of, the benefit even of our listeners that maybe just aren't that familiar with you, can you tell me who Phil Kelly is and maybe a little bit about your background and early years and I suppose what shaped the person that you are today? Sure, I mean, uh, as I've said on many occasions before, stories of conformity are never that exciting and I conform to my parents' worldview. Their story's a little bit more interesting because both of them grew up in East Belfast, very much from the the red, white and blue tradition. Um, one of my grandfathers was a shipyard worker and the other died in the Second World War, a prisoner of war in the Burma Railway. And really their young lives, quite separate from each other, was formed by poverty uh, that they witnessed around them. And both independently of one another uh, formed a worldview which kind of rejected the communal background they were growing up in. And they, through education, self-education as it was, they found their kind of identity in, in class politics and socialism. They both became uh, communists and then they uh, very much embraced the idea of uh, the, the struggle against partition of the island. Um, and from their background, that was not completely unique, but you know certainly uh, an outrider. Um, but they never left East Belfast. They, they spent their lives there and uh, their politics kind of formed the politics that, that I grew up with, uh, you know, the the idea that class is the big divide that needs to be struggled against, the idea of equality, uh, fighting exploitation, and, and kind of the struggle against sectarianism, which is that other, you know, the, that other manifestation of partition. You were certainly born in the right country for all them boxes to be ticked. <laughs> there, there's plenty to, to struggle with, as anyone who's engaged in kind of left-wing and class politics in Ireland will know we've always had plenty to, to reel against and plenty to struggle against and uh, I think myself and brother are keeping that tradition going. Very good. Did I hear you speak once about your brother is a lecturer is he in Scotland? Yes he's a university lecturer in Scotland uh, specialising in literature and again uses his position really to advance uh, the, the writing around class, social class from a Marxist perspective and to, to really bring forward writers who history has kind of forgotten, you know, the, the give expression to working class uh, identity and politics and, and a very big promoter of the ideas and the, the work of James Connolly. And did I also, you nearly think I'd done a little bit of research on you, um, did I see that he and potentially even yourself but I think it was your brother got invited over to Cuba to address, um, was it Parliament or some a year or two ago, no? Yeah, he, he uh, was honoured to be invited to speak at an anti-imperialist conference in Havana, which brought people from across the globe together, uh, and it was a, 
conference that was addressed by Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, Raul Castro, and the president of Cuba, Miguel Diaz-Canal. So it was a huge honor for him to speak at that and to, to meet up with people from the United States, from Puerto Rico, from you know various African nations, and that kind of discussion around how you, you build a network, a global network, to kind of fight against the, the forces that are, are really, you know, causing a lot of inequality in the world and oppression and, and misery. Tell me this, if, if I was to ask you, what job title would you put in yourself? How would you class yourself? How would you describe Phil Kelly? Or, ta- or an even better question, what do you tell your kids that you do? <laughs> well, the, 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 I, can, I can answer that because one of my children summed it up tonight over dinner where she said, uh, I was ca- trying to explain that when they finish university, you know, you go out into the big bad world and there's no more two month long summer holiday. And one of my daughters said, but sure, your life is, is a summer holiday, Dad. I, I find it hard to disagree with that. I'm a father and a family man who, in the minutes in between, speaks on the radio and, and on the media about various political issues. So that's that's in the cracks in between the family life. So that's that's my job title. And I guess your your passion, your activism, does it take you all over the world? It, do, it does. I mean, obviously, COVID has has prevented us from from so traveling. I'm very familiar with Zoom, like the rest of us. Zoom, yes. I've done two different Zoom meetings yesterday regarding Cuba and the situation in Cuba. Um, so, yeah, very often what we do is we, along with Fela, is bring uh, key activists from across the globe to Belfast. Um, and I've said before that you know whether it be Sandinista representatives or representative the Venezuelan government or Cuba, they're always very very impressed with what they see in Belfast and, and certainly around the fila of a very politicised community who understand the situation in their own countries and always receive a, an incredibly warm welcome and interest in, in in what they're talking about. I think understand was the key word there for me anyway, because we have that infinity with all our oppressed countries. Uh, war-torn countries, countries that have, you know, experienced civil war, like basically ourselves. Yeah, I mean that that resonates, and what the you know the Irish story resonates with countries across the world, whether it be other countries that are partitioned, other countries that are, uh, you know, uh, occupied, uh, colonized, and that has real bonds and that that kind of dialogue of empathy and understanding between those countries and us and our struggle and their struggle informs each other and it's also an, it's an education between two so that's, it's always important I think international solidarity is vital to, to anyone who's really serious about changing the world and, and, and building a meaningful political understanding of the challenges we face Just to bring us um, back home first of all I um, don't know why this question has popped into my head but I would love to hear your take on it I suppose recently I learned Phil our homeless community here cannot avail of the new spend local voucher scheme, um, which gives holders of the card £100. And the reason why they can't, because you need a fixed address to apply. Give me your thoughts on that. Look, one of the, the main themes, and we'll probably expand on this as our conversation progresses, is that, you know, yes, we are talking about partition. We're talking about the, the British border in Ireland and, the you know, the the... The struggle and the, the the building a campaign around the removal of that, then the the creation of a new Ireland. But there are many other partitions within our country, like any country, mm-hmm. and you know the partition between women, 
women's lack of rights in comparison to the rest of society, mm -hmm. the, the, the partition between immigrants or refugees and their rights in the rest of society, the partition between tra the traveller community and the rest of society in terms of rights, uh, the partition between you know racial groups and ethnic minorities in terms of their rights in the rest of society. And then for me, the most important, or the, the most deep and profound partition in Ireland, like any country, is the division between class, social class. And you see that in the terms of the amount of homelessness, the amount of people who uh, are in insecure housing, um, and the impact that has on their lives and how they can access services, how they can gain employment, education, and then, you know, in the terms of this voucher scheme, which seems... Uh, a, a rather ill-thought-out scheme, I think, when it starts to you, you start to pull away at it. Um, again, it's another thing that you know we're denying people, and I think. It, yeah, it's, for me, it's a little bit ironic that uh, a millionaire can get the voucher, and a homeless person cannot. Well, it's it's the perfect. Um, <laughs> example of, of capitalist society where the more wealth you have the less you have to spend it and the more wealth you can you can uh, hoover up it, it's it's not unique to the voucher scheme sadly it's 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 something that are is embedded in this in our society in the way our society works it's a perfect metaphor for the kind of inequality that we promote in in the way we structure our economy and our politics yeah no <clears throat> i say i just i jumped out at me somebody said to me do you realize what I'm only after saying there about homeless people can't get this card, and it wasn't until they pointed out that I went, scratched my head and went, "Oh my God!" Like the very people that actually need it. Now I know it's supposed to boost the economy, but it's also a, on a personal human level, people actually do need this as well. Yeah. And it just seemed, you know, talk about ironic. Like it, it was ridiculous, I thought. But anyway, that's my rant over. Yeah. Phil, the world was subjected to four years of Donald Trump. But I think the less said about that, maybe the better. Tell me this, what's your thoughts with the Biden administration so far, both globally and, I suppose, here, moving forward for Ireland? Okay, well, I, I may shock you here. Um, <clears throat> Trump was a nightmare. Uh, but the idea that the election of the Biden administration was the end of a night, that nightmare, I think, is delusional because the, the reality of the United States of America is the mask changes of whoever inhabits the White House, the PR around that individual changes, mm. um, the, how their spokesmen put across or spokeswomen put across uh, their, their various policies may change, but the harsh reality is the American dream is and has always been a nightmare. And in terms of the international work I do, the Biden administration uh, in its relations with Cuba, in its relations with Nicaragua, with Venezuela, is even more aggressive uh, even more promoting of interference, undermining democracy, uh, ignoring international law than the Trump administration. And that's something that liberals, I think, in the West find difficult to, to understand. Well, I'm delighted now that I've asked you that because you're educating me and I'm assuming most of our listeners here. Please go on and tell me. Okay, so I mean, give you one example. The, the, the great hope was, you know, a bit like the Obama era of, you know, change, the change from the Trump era. The Biden administration came in and has tightened even further from Trump the blockade on Cuba. Now, I'm very involved in the campaign against what is an illegal blockade of Cuba. Uh, this year at the United Nations, only two countries voted to uphold the illegal blockade. They were the United States itself and Israel. Every other country rejected the blockade. 
the Biden administration has saw COVID uh, and has seen that as a, a, a chance to really turn the screw on Cuba. And I think that is, I think it's a, a crime against humanity because in the first year as the COVID pandemic spread across the world, Cuba was very good at protecting its citizens from the worst effects. It, and it actually sent medical de delegations and brigades throughout the world, most notably, I think, in Italy. I think people were shocked when Cuban... And I think even over to Wuhan in China, when the outbreak first came about, wasn't that correct? I, yes, uh, we spoke to a Cuban doctor uh, shortly after that, who was one of the first to go, and he said that they were basically approached by the government, asked to volunteer, you know, who would volunteer. They didn't want family, uh, people who had families, because they didn't understand the virus. And the, the doctors before disembarking to China basically went off and just read up as much as they could about this new virus and then went straight into Wuhan, the front line. And then I think notably, as I said to you, in Italy, when Lombardy in Italy was ravaged by COVID, uh, the dead were piling up in makeshift mortuaries. Cuban doctors arrived at that at that darkest hour for the Italian people and those doctors went straight from the airport to the front line to, to help save lives. And am I also right in thinking that the Cuban administration offered to put its medics into America too? Yes, I mean, the Henry Reeve Brigade, who are the, the medical brigade serving throughout the world, were actually set up uh, after Hurricane Katrina because when the Cuban government saw what had happened after Hurricane Katrina, they sent doctors and aid workers to the airport and said to the Americans, we have people ready to go to ground zero and yeah. start helping you, and the American government refused it. And when Fidel Castro analyzed it, he said, right, well, this has been refused by the United States, but we can use this emergency brigade in the future mm -hmm. to respond to earthquakes mm -hmm. or like the Ebola crisis. But what has happened uh, over that first year as Cuba battled the pandemic and de developed from scratch five effective vaccines and, and numerous treatments, the, basically, the, the blockade prevented the import of syringes, of PPE. Mm. You had situations where the Cuban government had bought ventilators, but then the company was taken over by an American company, and then their, their ventilators didn't end up going to Cuba. So gradually, that put pressure on the Cuban health system. And really, the last couple of months, you've, you've, you saw a collapse in Cuba of their health system and real pressure, uh, people dying, cancer treatments, um, ended and suspended. They've started to get their, their feet back on the ground because their vaccination program is now extended to, to kids. And just today, Cuban schools reopened for face-to-face -face learning and they're starting to welcome international flights back into the country and hoping to kind of encourage the kind of regrowth of tourism. But I think it's the ultimate cynicism and, and, and really um, aggressive stance of the United States to view that crisis, that COVID crisis, affecting every country in the globe and say we can use this to affect regime change to support our foreign policy. I think it's obscene. Okay, I suppose just going back to my original question about Biden, which I, I naively assumed would have been a better administration generally, but there you go. I, yeah. How about then? So, so Biden is worse, you said, than, than Trump was in regards to Cuba anyway. But how, how, what, do we, what do you think in regards to Ireland? Would you have any hope that the, the American administration would get re-involved in the whole peace process? Look, let, let's be realistic around the, the movement towards a, a border pole as we see it, which is, is gaining momentum uh, each day. You now have in the United States a, a Biden administration very favourable and very focused on Ireland. Um, 
Now, that comes with, with problems, and from my political point of view, comes with deep problems in the same way that even the EU, who will be central to any, any move towards Irish unity, uh, comes with problems, you know, and we can talk about those later. But anyone engaged in the political realm, uh, the main parties who are back in Irish unity, should, you know, it's, it's clear they're looking at the Biden administration and saying this is another uh, key piece on the chessboard. Give me one health warning. The health warning is that, you know, we talked about partition and we talked about a new Ireland. When people talk about a new Ireland, it can mean many different things. And again, we can develop this as our conversation progresses. But a new Ireland to me certainly isn't an Ireland dominated by global corporations. A new Ireland isn't somewhere that becomes a slush fund or a tax evasion uh, plaything for, you know, securing your profits. Um, and it certainly isn't something that should be there to uh, facilitate uh, U.S. economic interest um, and also U.S. military interest, you know, and the fact that we have Shannon Airport, which is used and undermines, in my view, Irish neutrality. So that would be the health warning over the Biden administration. Yes, they will back where we want to go in terms of this border poll. Yes, they will act as a counterweight to the, the nefarious interests of the British government, but we should always be conscious of, you know, we don't step from one uh, loss of our sovereignty and, and hand it away to another, and exactly the same issue with the, with the European Union on that. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Well, maybe come back to that, as you say. Right, I'm going to set you a wee challenge here, Phil. Okay. List me three qualities that Boris Johnson has. Why are you laughing? <laughs> the, the ability to lie and not suffer consequences. Um, the, the ability to, to say nothing uh, of substance and yet have it reported as if he has said something of substance. And the ability to resonate to... Really to, to, to resonate to people whose interests he has no interest in whose existence he cares nothing of. I mean, he is the ultimate charlatan, the ultimate clown, um, and, uh, you know, a, a dangerous individual, but who has used uh, his pantomime act uh, really to, to feed his own narcissism and his, his desire. Because I think he's an individual who just craves uh, power for, for no good reason other than to feed his own ego. Um, <clears throat> very recently, we had a joint podcast with Professor Colin Harvey, Queen's University, and Glenn Bradley, an ex-British soldier. I uh, don't know if you heard it, but Glenn actually quoted this, that he reckons, quite confidently he says, that Boris Johnson will be the last Prime Minister to rule over the Union. I hope he's right. I think um, certainly in his conduct uh, in government, he's doing everything that would, would substantiate that view. If if voters react in a rational and logic way, logical way, and that's, that's the issue, voters don't always act in a logical and rational way, and that's what you saw in 2019, where, you know, English people, England's going through a political spasm. Brexit was one of the, the big moments that, that showed that. But also, the, the 2019 election, for a country that said it was fed up with, you know, politicians who were all the same, they had a choice between a politician who actually offered credible change from from the status quo and you had an old Etonian with a track record for lying, incompetence, 
all those issues and you had people within former mining communities who voted for the old Etonian mm -hmm. and I think that is indicative of, of the deeply problematic direction that, that England is going in. So hopefully Scotland make the right choice. I think indications show they, they are and I think that, that feeds the debate here then. You know, this dysfunctional union led by a Tory government that is in equal parts incompetent and cruel. Uh, I think really has to get people to question, you know, how are we served by remaining in this political union, which effectively is, is you know, causing so much misery. And, you know, I think we need to reject it. Yeah. <clears throat> Just on the constitutional question here, Phil. Now, I heard you say something once, and I'm, I'm not going to accurately quote you here, but the gist of it was will be this, and you can flesh it out yourself. But... I guess before I say it, I, th I thought it made so much sense, and it was a beautiful analogy, and I'll come back to Cuba here, okay. is that you said something like, in many ways, we have a lot in common with Cuba. Cuba is a small um, island nation off the coast of an empire, and, um, and here they have shaped, built, and crafted their new future. Um, surely we here in Ireland can take inspiration from that and you know we can start to shape our future and i thought when i when i heard you say it wow you know that's exactly what we need to do absolutely and you know cuba is not a utopia uh, cuba is a country like any other that has its own problems it, uh, issues that it needs to resolve but the important thing about cuba is the destiny of cuba thanks to the revolution in 1959 is in the hands of the cuban people no one else they will make the, the decision about you know what direction their country takes it's a country uh, that I think proves that if you have a system of government that's sole priority is the welfare of its citizens above all other consideration, then you can do wonderful things. And I think that... Well, it should be the first, uh, it should be the number one thing on any constitution, the welfare and protection of every country's own citizen. Too often constitutions have, you know, the, the, the great the well-written phrases that don't manifest themselves into reality as to how a society is run. So, you know, you, you, do you want an Ireland that really puts its citizens first or do you want an Ireland that puts the, the tax uh, efficiency of a global corporation first? Do you want an Ireland that puts families and people's right to housing, housing as a social right, above... Or, or show a healthy bank balance. Yeah, or, you know, do, do you prioritise landlordism? You know, yeah. the, the, the obscene... Uh, sight of people living in tents outside the GPO, you know, th th where James Connolly walked in in 1916 with hopes of building a republic that would defend the weakest citizens and, and, and build a, a country that was fit to be proud of. Now you have people living in tents, uh, evicted from homes, in the name of what? Whose interest does it serve to see Irish people evicted from their houses? You know, you, you think back to the, the radicalisation of... of uh, the fight for of republicanism, you know, around evictions and how emotive that is uh, in Irish history, and we actually have now private companies going and evicting families from their homes. Irish men evicting Irish men from their own homes, ring a bell. Absolutely, you know, and this is not the the republic that, that James Connolly envisioned. It's it's a sad imitation of it, and it, it's clear that you know the 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 society developed in twenty six counties was not one that, as we said, a its own citizens first. You know, when we think of the, the treatment of women, uh, you think of the, what's come out about the laundry system. Um, you know, there's, there's much work to be done, I think, and 
I think that should be a motivating factor to 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 reconnect to the vision of Connolly and those who who fought alongside him, the women and men, the, the, those nameless people who fought for a better country, uh, material country for themselves. Okay, just sticking with uh, the South here, give me your assessment of Michael Martin and his current coalition government, and maybe what's your take on the new shared island unit that has, I suppose, over a year now it's been established? Well, they come from a tradition, you know, the the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael tradition of false opposites to me. It's a a political pantomime, Um, you know, and the, the idea that both those establishment parties fear what is happening because they know that, you know, the, a New Ireland, their position is crumbling beneath it. I mean, the, the polls, as you see, show an appetite within 26 counties for actual change. You know, the, those kind of the, the hangover of the Celtic Tiger, the, 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 the fall away of, of society. People are really thirsting for actual solutions to their problems, not, you know, the kind of pantomime government changes and coalitions of chaos that you see. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it, what, what you see in the, the, that kind of their talk about uh, facilitating the, 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 the discussion around uh, Irish unity is, is, is wafer thin, is shallow, is meaningless. It, it is not truly engaging with the issue. And we need an Irish government that is actually preparing the ground practically, making sure the conversations are happening, making sure that everything is in place, that this process can begin and, and begin in a way that is not chaotic, that is not not full of surprises, but it, it is well thought out with international support. You're not going to get that with this government. You know, and then when you look at the kind of the, the, the junior partner, um, the Green Party, you know, you've a Green Party leader having to be woken out of a slumber to vote against workers' rights. I think it's an indictment of, you know... Can you just tell our listeners what you're referring to there, Phil? Was in, when Eamon Ryan was asleep in the doyle and, and you know, uh, somebody had to nudge him to wake him up to, to, to vote against improving and strengthening workers' rights. It's an indictment of a failed political system where, despite the changes, you know, the Labour coalition that was in before that, that, that reaped so much misery, you know, and paid correctly the political price. But what I want to see is the two establishment parties now paying a political price. This pantomime of false opposite needs, it belongs in the dustbin of history. But with the rotation of Taoiseach, um, you know, is that really going to happen in the foreseeable future? No, but we, you know, I, I think the next election, uh, I'm very hopeful that you will see. I mean, the last election was about standing against change, about the establishment parties coming together, together and resisting the change that the Irish people had said they wanted. I think the next election will be about the undeniability of that, that change agenda taking root. Uh, I hope so, uh, and, but I get the, get the sense that that's, that's the direction we're moving. And maybe certain political parties actually stand more candidates. Yes, but uh, you know, I think as as the results, it was a hard one to call. We would all like to be, uh, you know, the the, the great uh, visionaries that, that called it. I didn't, you know. I, I I expected a good election for Sinn Fein, but you know, I think there was a stage where a lot of people at that point were going, "What what, what did you do? You've really misplayed this." Um, but I think they'll learn from that, um, you know, and we'll we'll see what the next election brings. I think there's 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 cause for optimism. Phil, you are a former chair of the Labour Party here in the North. How did you get involved in that? How, how long have you got, Suzy? <laughs> Life is about contradictions. And while um, I would say uh, 
Nelson McCausen wrote a piece on his, his blog about me. I, I delivered a speech um, in Sheffield where I talked about the contradictions in my political stance as saying a Marxist and a Republican. What party did I end up joining? I joined the Labour Party, and you know he t- he thought this was a great uh, a great gotcha moment. I'd like to say I remain a Republican. Well, yes, he does. <laughs> I'd like to say I remain a Marxist and I remain a Republican, but I'm no longer involved in the Labour Party. The, the Labour Party was an interesting one. It, what happened was with Corbyn on the leadership ticket, I had a number of close uh, friends who who were in the, to the left within the Labour Party, most notably probably Chris Williamson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really I felt to myself, right, should I get involved here just to vote? So I joined Just to Vote, and then me being me, uh, the, the local party <laughs> rang me. wasn't enough for your phone. Well, me being me, the local party rang me at the time. I'd just joined the party to, to say, would you consider voting Andy Burnham? And that got my back up. So I thought, I'll go to the first meeting, and I'll just make a case for Corbyn. And what happened was I met a lot of people who'd come into the party. We started talking, and it was clear there was a, there was a real local interest in, in the kind of politics that Corbyn espoused. Now, I never wanted British Labour to stand in the North. Um, I was sometimes quiet about that, but really what I, what I hoped to do in my dealings with the Labour Party was to facilitate a conversation ar- around the left within the North to see was there some kind of cross-party platform thing that this 3,000 people who'd sw- you know, come into the local Labour Party, big influx of membership, can that be galvanised into something, something similar to the Right to Change platform in the South? I quickly discovered that trying to get left-wing groups to work in unison on anything was was nigh impossible and then the, the kind of unionist uh, dna of the local labor party for me just became too much to bear and the reality was that much of that kind of local corbyn surge was people like myself who just wanted to join the party vote for this guy get him in yeah, yeah. and and let let the let the english deal with it mm-hmm. um so do I regret it? Not particularly. It was totally contradictory in terms of my principles, um, politically not, not uh, streamlined at all. But I got a lot out of it, and you life's know, life's a journey. Life's a journey, <laughs> and you know the the kind of friendship I have with Chris Williamson, who ended up being suspended of the party. And I, I, again, I think that was a huge illustration of just how much the the establishment will fight back, and the establishment within the Labour Party would fight back against meaningful change. And I think what it proved, and I hope it has proved this within England, is that the Labour Party is not a vehicle for radical change, that the Labour Party exists actually to give the illusion, a bit like what we were talking about, the Democrats and the Republicans in the States, to give the illusion of choice when really it's not. It's about defending a, a failed establishment. Well, Keir Starmer recently said that he would campaign for Northern Ireland to remain within the Union. How do you assess Starmer's leadership? And if he did get into power, how would he impact result of any future potential border pull? I mean, think of anything that, that Starmer says, probably the opposite then will, 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 will gain traction because he is a man of, of no substance, a man who kind of presented, was presented to the public as this kind of forensic, very intelligent individual. I think everything that was proved in his leadership that he, he lacks any of those qualities. He's inept, he's clueless, he doesn't connect, he has no vision, he's no policy. You've got a, a Labour Party which actually increasingly finds itself taking a position to the right of of a very right-wing Tory party, just completely uh, politically untethered. I mean, 
the kind of legacy of Blairism was that it left a parliamentary Labour Party that was politically lobotomized, not tethered to, to kind of any vision, um, uh, a party of focus groups and, you know, how you can spin. So he's he's been a, he's had a devastating effect on the Labour movement in England. And, and long term, that's probably a good thing because it needs that change. It needs to that needs that reset in terms of his posturing around the North, I think we need to be clear that no political party in England cares one iota about the North of Ireland and that if if they could have their wish, they could they would get this place moved away. I think that's become more and more evident as every month passes. Yeah, it's, it's an afterthought, but here's where geopolitics and the wider political landscape comes into play. What does worry politicians in England is Scotland. And that if anyone is, was making noises that made Irish unity seem closer, seemed like it was being planned for, that would send a signal to Scotland where the appetite for Scottish independence is growing by the day. So I think within England you have a political uh, fear of what... Because, you know, Scotland going indie would be would have huge consequences. Well, the union effectively would be dissolved. Would be over, yeah. So I think the kind of noises and the mood music they make around the north is more about, mm-hmm. you know, keeping an eye on Scotland. Looking into the, the, the future? Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Okay. Phil, you recently have been involved in an organisation, Democracy in, Euro- in Europe movement. What is it and what's its aims and objectives? Yeah, it's... A, not so much involved anymore now. DM25 was an organisation set up by former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis, and we developed a, a good friendship myself and a couple of other activists with Yanis. We brought him over to to Belfast on a number of occasions, and we had meetings with him in Dublin. And really, it was in the wake of the kind of Brexit vote. It was about the idea: can you have an insurgency, a progressive, a radical insurgency within the EU against the EU because kind of what I touched upon earlier, I was very much against Brexit. As an Irish citizen, I I could see and I spoke on a number of panels with Paul Gosling on this, um, who was also against Brexit, both of us on the left. Um, Now, I was against Brexit as an Irish citizen. You you can kind of see the, the contradiction where... This is a British exit from the EU, but I live in Ireland and I can see problems arising from this, so I don't support this process. And also the fuel of that process, regardless of what anyone says, was a rise of xenophobia conditioned within England over decades by the right-wing press. I'm anti-EU. I have very little time for the EU as an institution, but the idea of DM25 was could you have, as I said, within it a radical insurgency, a a political union across borders that really tries to reset that uh, that political union of the European Union. The the cold hard lesson for me over the last number of years is I don't think that's possible. 
the EU is moving increasingly in a direction uh, that, that I just don't think you can reset it. Um, the, the neoliberal agenda of its economics, the, the, the misery that it has wreaked on Greece and continues to wreak on, on Greece and other countries, the kind of fiscal waterboarding, as, as Giannis would describe it, of countries that, that makes no logical sense but is all about this drive towards you know, the, the, the market forces of Europe. Uh, it's deeply sinister. There's issues within it, and I just don't think that, that there's traction there to do it. Now, Yanis is, is continuing to build political parties within countries like Germany, Greece, um, and, and to try and build that language of, you know, bringing a pan, a, 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 an alternative, if you like. Because, you know, I think all of us, um, regardless of what we think about the EU, you like the idea of a Europe that could pull together and, and could focus in a, in, a, in a direction that, again, like we said earlier, puts citizens' needs first over global corporations. So uh, I watch with interest now as a, as, a, as a friend and as an admirer of what he does, but I'm no, not no, no doubt. Um, nothing will shock me if um, there's some new organisation set up here and you're leading it. No, absolutely not. No, I think uh, the, the one thing uh, that over the last couple of years that... Um, I have resolved to is I'll, I'll speak out, I'll speak my mind, but I do not have leadership qualities, I don't have political qualities, and there's something very comfortable about being able to say what you think and not torpedo an organisation, by, by, by being too honest. I don't have the qualities of it, I wouldn't inflict myself on any electorate. Um, I think people deserve better than, than people like me. I think you're underplaying your hand <laughs> severely here, but anyway, tell me this, Phil. Will the carrot of automatic re-entry into Europe be a major factor in any potential border poll campaign? Of course, uh, you know, and while I, I, I've spelt out, you know, in some terms, my kind of opposition, my critique of the, the of European <coughs> Union, the, the political reality is this, that in the wake of Brexit, support for the EU, certainly within Ireland, has grown Um People still know there's issues with it, they still know there's problems, but they've seen Brexit, they see the direction that's going, and there's huge support for the EU. Any any poll shows that, and the talk of Ireland leaving the EU as marginal fringe groups. So therefore, any political party engaged in the electoral process who's serious about you know speaking to the people with, pragmatically will take that approach. Uh, I, I can see why they would do that. Tell me this, why did Scotland not get that reassurance from the EU? Difficult one to, to answer that. I mean, uh, there's only so much I think the, the European Union can do through its own rules of, of, of how it could admit, um, and also the kind of signals that that would say. That would be a very, very divisive stance for the EU to take in terms of a, a London government. Um, so there's politics behind that. It's very, very clear that the direction that Scotland politically is going in is, is one that wants independence and, and, you know, to be within the EU. Um, the, the economic reality for Scotland probably is, you know, if, as it leaves England behind, then it needs to be part of that, you know, trading bloc. Yeah. Um, and that'll be a compelling political argument within Scotland. And as you said, then to go back to the original point, I think there is a huge um, interest among people who do want that kind of return to the, the EU. They do want to be part of that. And the, the, the kind of New Ireland as a selling point, that's... I'm going to um, ask you to name me a few benefits. Ireland, we have a new Ireland. There's a border poll called and pro-advocates of a new Ireland have won it. Give me four or five benefits of being back in the EU. 
I, I can't do that. Um, what I would say is this, and it, it comes back to what I said about the partitions, the other partitions with our, in Ireland, other than the removal of the British border. So when a border poll takes place, Niall, it's not going to, it's not a, it's not as a referendum, it's not going to be, do you want what I want, a 32 county socialist republic? That's not going to be on any referendum, never will be. What it will be is, if I'm being absolutely honest, is a, is a, a New Ireland within the EU, heavily sponsored by the U US government, a neoliberal uh, free market Ireland that, that'll carry forward lots of the problems that it already has. But that sounds like everything that you don't want, Phil. It is. And the, but the reason that I will vote and I'll campaign to remove the British border is because it changed the landscape on which we struggle. So we live in a failed statelet, a statelet that was built on sectarianism, that is maintained by sectarianism and that breeds sectarianism. The, the change, by removing that border, we change the, the, the landscape on which we struggle. And that's where post-Irish uh, unity, the struggle has to continue then for the ownership of of Irish resources by the Irish people uh, for better employment rights, for housing as a, as a, as a human right, not a, not a business transaction, for education for all. All those other things follow on from that. I'm under no illusion as to what is achievable through a border poll. The biggest voices in that border poll will not be mine. There'll be institutions like the EU, the US government, Sinn Féin, SDLP, you know, it is not going to be advocates for for what I believe in, but what I will do is I'll I'll march with that movement, on the understanding that when that is achieved, then we the, the struggle continues. It's kind of what Connolly said, you know, we will do this, and then you know, we we move on to other other struggles. And I think there's a, there's a lot of excitement around it. So I'm not being pessimistic. I just know that what I'm voting for on that day when the border poll comes is not for a pre-packaged off the shelf. Utopia. It's just about we've changed the parameters around what we struggle. Yeah, uh, your vision. And by the way, I think it's a realistic vision because it's also mine. It's going to be a stepping stone process. You get yeah. one thing, and then you hope to improve on it, and make it better. Well, one of the things I've heard, Niall, is you know, so-called progressive or liberal unionist saying, "Well, I'd be very hesitant. Not you know, I'm open to the idea of United Ireland, but they don't have a great health service. There's no free health service." It's a nonsense view, you know. These are some sometimes there are people who describe themselves as socialist, as if you can you can vote into being. That never happens. You cannot vote a new society into being. We can we can change the the political landscape, but what what we have to do is understand that you don't take a new Ireland off a shelf. It is something that working men and women will have to struggle for in the next five years, ten years, fifty years, ongoing. Which leads me on to my next point beautifully. Do you see the establishment of a citizens' assembly bill as the next logical step here to discuss, plan, prepare, and I suppose, you know, to avoid the catastrophic mistakes of Brexit where there clearly was no plan? Look, absolutely. Look, one of the things you've done, and I think you said before we started this conversation that you'd done something like 70 podcasts, and in that, you know, that's a a contribution to the, the bigger conversation taking place everywhere and it's an important thing um, the kind of citizens assemblies is, is, is an important 
aspect of, as you say, removing the doubts, uh, dealing with questions, because there are difficult questions around, you know, the practicalities of what happens. Of, of I want to know what it's going to look like. Yeah. But so do you. Everybody does. Yeah, and we, we need to know what time frames look like. You know, when you vote, what happens the next day? Is it, a, you know, uh, what is the structure of the vote? Um, as Mike Nesbitt said jokingly, but as point, you know, kind of as half serious, is that if there's um, a border poll one tomorrow and... You get a summons. Who pulls up in Garda Shekana or the PSNI? <laughs> exactly. Who who is evicting you? As we said earlier, from your from your house, probably group, you know, a private contractor, I should say. Um, but yeah, so there's lots of these questions, legitimate questions, not only the unionists and you know very often people focus on the, qu- the people who have questions would be unionists or loyalist community but republicans nationalists in betweens everyone else has questions about you know what will this look like what will it do for for me and my family my community how will it affect my work and you know one of the important voices and I, a man who I have political differences with but I have nothing but respect for is Paul Gosling and I, I can't recommend the work he's done in his book A New Ireland, A Ten Year Plan. It really sets out kind of logical steps of what, what is the British government's commitment in this? What do they have to fulfil? What does the Irish government have to do? What do international partners and organisations have to do as well? Lots of deep things that need to be worked out, need to be discussed and also then, yes, people's fears. You know, where do I sit in this new society? How, how will I be respected? All these things need to be need to be dealt with, need to be discussed, and the more people talk, and I think this has been a theme throughout your podcast, because you've had people with, you know, fairly oppositional views to the idea of a border poll. But when when they actually engage in a conversation, they see that this is a process that they should be taking part in, because if you don't take part in, it's something that's going to happen to you anyway. You know, the, the, these are I've said before, unionism is kind of sitting canute like on a shore and there is irreversible, many irreversible tides are coming in them that it cannot push back. The two most important of those tides, in my opinion, are demographic change and economic reality. And probably the more important of those two is economic reality because the economic reality around staying in a dysfunctional United Kingdom or moving towards a society where you actually have a political stake and you know where you can then build an economy that it actually works. Uh, I think that'll be the most important one. Um, our listeners will be fed up hearing me say this, but I genuinely do fear for unionism if they don't get involved in this conversation. That you know, technically speaking, it's not up to me or pro advocates of constitutional change to you know make their case for them in the new Ireland. It's up to them. And my fear would be this: if they don't get involved in the conversation then what's going to happen when I believe inevitably it will happen at some stage that, you know, they need to be in there fighting their corner, ensuring whatever is precious to them is enshrined in law. And, you know, and I'm coming at that from a genuine, sincere point of view, by the way. Absolutely. And, you know, people's identity don't change uh, and you cannot rob someone of their identity and no one's seeking to do that. And I think it was... um, Pierce Darkety might have said, uh, you know, when you you look at the Irish flag and everything, you know, and Mary Lou Macdonald has talked about that everything is up on the agenda of discussing that, anthems, uh, this flag. I, but the, the, the flag of Ireland, and I'm not a, a, a flag flyer, but it really does represent the, the uniqueness of this place and, the, you know, that, that idea that there's not a shred more green than there is of orange and you know the orange tradition is represented in the very fabric of the of the national flag it is part of you know irish history it is part of our society 
that, that won't change, but the conversation needs to be around how can we build a new society that can endure the test of time, that can grow and that can provide somewhere where you know, citizens can just live. Happiness is something that politicians don't talk enough about, you know, a place where you can be happy, and I think we can create that society. Joel Key sat exactly where you're sitting um, a month, five weeks ago. And basically, himself and myself nodded in agreement our way through the whole podcast, which was just an hour. And Joel classes himself as a loyalist, or Joel, I should say, and a unionist, and a member of the PUL community. Because we, we agreed, Phil, that we want a better life for ourselves, our family, want a better education system, want free access to health um, in this new Ireland, want a better infrastructure, an economy and a police force that is countable to all members of society, regardless of your bank balance or what postcode you were brought up in. As you referenced at the start of the podcast, we want one on gender equality, sexual orientation, um, you know, whether you're homeless, a traveller, whatever, you know. We we all want the same thing when you think about it. And I really genuinely don't see what opposition anyone should have of making their lives and their country a better place for them. Absolutely. I mean, I remember reading about Scandinavia and, you know, when you, you talk to kids in school and they're asked, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And people say a vet or a doctor or an actor or a dancer. But why do they never say happy? I want to be happy when I grow up. And that... You know, the initial, the initial, but the initial response is laugh. But then you go, well, yeah, that that is a very profound thing. I want to be happy when I grow up. How do you secure happiness by making sure that people have a home to live in? No immigration. Yeah, you know, education. Uh, they're not worried about how they heat their homes like so many of our citizens this winter. They're not worried about how they put food on the table. They're not worried that if they get sick that their life can be destroyed because they're sitting for years on a waiting list, that health care is a human right, housing is a human right, education. And that breeds happiness because that gives people the room. When you remove insecurity and inequality from society, it gives r- people room to breathe, to think, to grow, to love. Uh, to develop and it, that, when when you've citizens doing that then you create a society that as I said earlier is worth living in and when you mention people like Joel and people within the PUL community and how they interact with this discussion it kind of brings me full circle to where my political journey started with my parents growing up after the second world war in East Belfast my mother remembers labour activists being chased out of her family home. Don't bring any of that red nonsense into this house. I, you know, chased out the door. People who were trying to improve the rights of workers within that community. Uh, my father, whose you know father died, saw men laying wreaths at the the cenotaph who stole his business off him. The, the family, you know, he had a business partner who then just co-opted the whole business, and my father and his mother were left in in destitution. So, you know, they were radicalised not by the sense of you know of an identity around flags but as working class people you know why can't we build an ireland and this was them in the 1950s you know that removes partition that removes this nonsense idea this servitude to the british and the british empire and to the idea of monarchy all these servile you know concepts and reject it because too often i think now often when a, when people from a loyalist background make some kind of vaguely progressive stance around politics that they're patronized i approach people because that's the community i grew up in as working as members of the working class they're my community in the same way as people on the falls road 
or on the bog side of my community. It's the working class, and that's how I think that there's an important conversation that needs to be had about class interests. How do people who aren't getting the kind of education they deserve, who aren't getting the economic opportunity, the jobs they deserve, the housing they deserve. How can we improve that? How can we do that? How can we deliver that? Sorry, I'm, um, I think it's rude on you and rude on potentially a previous guest, but for the last time, Joel Hickley referenced that, that. He felt as if that the education system let his age group and his community down. Absolutely, and unionism, the concept of Ulster unionism, which you know previously used to be Irish unionism and then morphed into Ulster unionism, is, is a self-defeating one because it's about a mindset that remains loyal and true to a Regardless of? Yeah, to a society that has, has, has cast you aside. You know, and I think back to David Irvine at the time of the, the Good Friday Agreement who called out those kind of you know grand old Duke of Yorks who were happy to march working class Protestant men and women up the hill, but then to walk away from them and let them do the jail time, let them do the the crimes, you know, the, the let them engage in the horror show and wash our hands off them, and you know, I think you need all communities need this to, to critically look at that and say, you know, who exploited us, who whose interest, did, you know, did we serve? Certainly not their own interest. If you look at the the kind of deprivation, the the, the educational performance within those communities. Um, you know, no, but it, it isn't unique. Is again, this is my problem with uh, you know parties like the the PUP when they talk about dealing with Protestant, specifically Protestant young men, educational attainment. I remember in their election leaf that they also cited you know it's as bad as the Roma community, but it, it offered a solution for Protestant working class boys, but it didn't offer a solution for the Roma community. But why not do that? You know, why not then, if, if other people are impacted by the same problem, why not offer solutions for that too, about bringing unity? And that's that's where the class analysis comes in. You know, we are all the same. And I want an Ireland that looks after the material interests of every citizen's living in it. And their identity can be whatever it may be. And cultural expression, in as diverse a way, should be welcome. You know, and it should be a home... That, it probably goes back to what we were talking about before. This New Ireland should be a home from which no one is evicted, but everyone is welcomed. I'm going to end this particular segment on your quote from Sweden, asking, uh, was it the young children, what do you want um, when you grow up? Happiness. And I think if we take nothing else from this podcast, that's a simple one, but a very effective one. Yeah. Uh, we're 50, nearly 54 minutes in here, Phil, so nearly finished, you'll be glad to hear. We touched earlier on Cuba, Phil. Speak to me about Palestine. Palestine? Palestine is... The, what is happening in Palestine is a, an indictment not only on the Israeli regime, but is an indictment on, on wider humanity, an indictment on the international community, that a people can be almost erased from their homeland. And this unending horror, this genocide... It goes on and it goes on relentlessly. Um, I've said before, you know, there, there many people talk about how you, how you solve the issue. For me, it's simple. Every inch of Palestine deserves liberation. It is up to the Palestinian people what they will accept, what 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 they will agree to. Because when people talk about a two-state solution, I can't say I, I support that option. To me, the, it is up to the Palestinian people. But and, and again, there's there's parallels with, with ourselves, obviously, 
Absolutely. I mean, you, you don't have to drive very far from here to see a Palestinian flag. Um, throughout Ireland, the Palestinian flag's flown. Uh, there was one on, on Black Mountain, a huge one put up in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And it's the same in, in Gaza. You will see the Irish flag, which symbolises to the people there uh, resistance. Um, and I think as a as a society, I think we, we, we get a lot of... Um, we're seen in a very high light by the, the people of Palestine, and I, I just hope we deserve to be held in that esteem. And I think we as a society, our government, need to do more. I think we need to do more in terms of making sure BDS is, is part of policy to make sure that Israeli diplomats are treated in the way they need to be. And, you know, I, I support those like Ogre Sinn Féin who were calling for the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador. I mean, war crimes, crimes against humanity cannot be tolerated. And we have a regime in Israel which, you know, I, I was very proud to meet uh, one of the men who set up the armed wing of the ANC, Ronnie Kasrell, a white man of, of Jewish heritage, a confident and friend of Nelson Mandela. But he took up arms against the apartheid regime of Israel from the 1960s and fought it until its demise. He has been he is on record of saying that the apartheid regime in Israel is worse than the apartheid regime he fought against in South Africa, and I think that's that's quite quite a profound statement because we know how much the, the international community kind of glowed in the kind of Mandela era of, you know, the liberal reaction to apartheid. Well, we need, to, we need that same international revulsion against Israel. Paint me your picture of Ireland in 20 years' time, Phil. <laughs> well, as Lennon said, what is it, you know, some, sometimes... A decade happens in a week, so you know we, we the, certainly um, things move are moving quicker. So there's a lot of lot of uh, urgency being put in things. So one of the things you know in the last week we've seen is the cop in Glasgow, and if that doesn't terrify people not only here but across the world as to the lack of political ambition to deal with what is an existential crisis facing humanity. So I think. We, I'm often a pessimist, but I think if we are going to deal with not just our own issues in Ireland, but the global issues that affect us also, then we do need bold solutions uh, to deal with those questions. So no, no, no more of that pantomime politics that we talked about earlier, no, no more of that sort of revolving door, changing the mask. We actually need uh, governments that deal with the, the questions facing society. So I'd like to see an Ireland that is... Standing in the international stage on principles of, of human rights and justice that, that stands against oppressive regimes like Israel, like Colombia, that stands up against US imperialism, that uh, supports countries in the global south looking for justice and climate justice, and that within its own territory looks after the needs of its citizens. So again, like we said, that views as fundamental human rights, things like housing, education, healthcare, and the right to well-paid work, and also puts in the hands of our citizens the ownership of the of wealth. That you know we have a, an absurd situation where Irish mineral wealth, the profits of it go to a Norwegian sovereign wealth fund and Irish citizens gain nothing from that. That kind of privatised Ireland where we've sold off everything to global corporations and hedge funds, that needs to stop. We need to use and harness 
the ability of our citizens and the richness of our resources to look after our people here and therefore give us that, that, that platform, that security to be a, a, a confident nation, a confident small nation that speaks, speaks out in the world. And would it be fair to say, Phil, that you can't have rights if not if everybody doesn't have rights? You know, rights are meaningless if they're not universal. Uh, you know, you go back to the Enlightenment and the, the kind of great ideas around liberty, fraternity, equality were always narrower than they seemed. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they weren't talking about slaves in Haiti when, when they were, you know, carving these into stone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that, therefore those concepts are meaningless if they don't relate to every human being. And that's where that Ireland on a global stage should, the, the rights that we demand for our citizens here, then must be rights that we support and promote throughout the world. Very true. Phil Kelly, who inspires you? Um, I've met the work I do is is on a daily basis inspirational. I've met many many people, um, political leaders, revolutionaries. Give me one name. Well, I'll I'll, I'll give you a group. My, <laughs> okay. it, it would be my family. It'd be my my mother, my father, and my brother, um, who. You know, as much as I've met people who I admire uh, hugely, there's a you know, there, I've never lived in a house that didn't have Che Guevara on the wall. Um, at the same time, the people that have had the most effect on me and that, that the consistent effect, and who you know, really inspire me on a daily basis of my family and also my wife and my kids. Because the, the, you know, if you think I I talk the truth, as I said earlier, my, my daughters and my wife can tell the truth very very effectively. Well, I think that answer speaks volumes about the person you are. Water or alcohol? <laughs> you can see we're getting into the silly part of this podcast now. I, I, I have um, my relationship with alcohol is over. <laughs> it, it, it ended in divorce about ten years ago. Um, <laughs> both of us, both of us went our our separate ways. I'm currently banging my head off a table here, folks, <laughs> just to let you know. <laughs> so yeah, I, uh, I've actually discovered in the last, and I shouldn't be. This isn't product product placement, so you can bleep this out. But um, I discovered Guinness Zero. Oh, okay. And it, it, Did I see Doug Beatty recently on social media drinking one of them, I think? <laughs> Possibly. Uh, I'm not a follower of, of Doug. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's life-changing to me. To me, it, it tastes like what my memory of Guinness was. The last alcoholic drink I had uh, over 10 years ago was a pint of Guinness. And only in the last co- two weeks, I think it was, I discovered this. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, it, it is... Uh, as I, as I would say, a game changer. Game changer, yeah. yeah so. Favourite book, Phil? Favourite book? Um, there's many. Um, I'll give you two answers. The, the book that, that changed my life, where I read it when I was very young, was um, Che Guevara's Reminiscence of a Cuban Revolutionary War. It's just a, a very dry take-through in Che's way, very straightforward, but it, it gave me a measure of this man that was hanging on my parents wall but the book the novel that I would recommend that everyone read is uh, The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists Um, it was written you know over a hundred years ago it wasn't published in the author's lifetime Robert Tressel he died and was buried in a pauper's grave and it it got publication after his death because it was seen as seditious Um, it's a wonderful book and there's a live show a one man play that tours uh, and, and sort of presents extracts of that book, but it is the most accurate account of working people and the, the kind of conversations that happened that could 
is still relevant today. The dialogue between workers, workers who blame immigrants for their low wages, and then uh, in the midst of it, you have a socialist character who's trying to present to to his. Is that you? His, uh, no, I, 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 I'm not as strong as the central character there. No, but uh, just that that kind of constant argument against within your own class to say, you know, we need to waken up, stop buying the lies that are presented to us, stop seeing the person beside you as the enemy. Mm. You know, a bit like the sectarian divide here, we're not each other's enemy. The yeah. loyalist working class community is not the enemy of the Republican working class community. That narrative serves an agenda that doesn't serve the working class of this place. So that that's my book recommendation. I think everyone should read it. it it's What's a, the title again, please? The please? Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. So it means us at the bottom are given our, our wealth and our productivity up to those at the top, the few at the top. Excellent. Uh, Favourite film? <laughs> these, these questions are getting easier. Yeah, in a, in a week that changes. So, <laughs> Favourite film um, of all time is Jaws, so nothing political. Um, and any, anyone, that, that, anyone that knows me will, 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 will tell you this. Uh, I, can, I know the entire script. Uh, huge Robert Shaw fan, and just a, a film that I I've watched every year. So that nothing political in that. I'm very tempted to ask you to give me a line or two. <laughs> but I won't. Favorite food, Phil. Uh, favorite food. I'm I'm bland, famously bland. Rice, rice and beans. <laughs> Best piece of advice you've ever been given. Shut up. <laughs> Was that to me or is that an answer to the question? That was to me. Yeah. One I haven't heeded enough in my life. <laughs> Listen, we're all guilty of it, so don't worry about it. Right. Name me one item that will always be in your fridge, no matter what. Milk. Our family consume milk. Like, uh, I have three daughters and they have porridge in the morning, porridge in the evening, so I constantly have to run out at... 11 o'clock at night because there's no milk in the fridge. Milk is not. We, we have a with this golden rule. I'm giving away too much information about my family here, which is anyone who's out of the house. If you stop in a shop, you have to buy milk, and if you if you've stopped at a shop to fill up the car with petrol and you didn't buy milk, that's a, a huge exigence. You have to. It doesn't matter how much you have. You, you have to buy. So you're a bit like Mrs. Doyle with a tea. Oh, Regardless, that's your, yeah. If you have a cup in your hand, you still need. We still, cup. yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. So you're the same with the milk. So, Very yep. good. so take a. You'll be delighted to this. This is genuinely my last question, and it's one that we asked everybody. It's kind of like a theme. If you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, and they can be live or dead, who would they be and why? Okay, so this is this is a difficult one. Um, so only three. So I think I would have... Um, I have to have Che. Uh-huh, of course. So, He's been on my wall, so it's only only right that he comes to dinner. And he could be a difficult dinner guest, though, because Che's a man of high standards, you know. So I'd be, I'd be fearful. Um, I'd be, then be sort of deciding between Klopp and Bill Shankly. I was, um, I was, I knew Bill Shankly was going to be up. Yeah. There. So it has to be. I'd have to turn down Klopp, and I'd have to bring Bill Shankly just for the fact that this man gave kind of Liverpool its DNA. Um, I would agree. Plus, Klopp's still alive, so you could potentially have another. We can do that. Yeah, we yeah. can do that in a couple of weeks. I'll get a few more Guinness Zero in and, <laughs> and fill the fridge with milk. Yes. Um, so, yeah, Bill Shankly, and then to go take it away from sport and politics, and to get some female representation because that's important. Because I could easily be inviting Fidel Castro here, and uh, I'm going to get into difficulty for not. I could be inviting Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, uh, Karl Marx. Um, 
but again, they could be fussy eaters. I think I'd, I'd invite um, Kim Deal, who's uh, uh, you don't know her. No, Niall, you're, I don't. You, you're you're more into country music. She I'm was a uh, writing this down. Kim Kim Deal. She's the often referred to as the coolest woman alive. What do you mean I'm more I thought you had Nathan Carter ringtone, sorry. Uh, but, uh, uh, so, um, no, she's a bass player in a band called the Pixies, very oh, very I, important band in the, the, the 80s, 90s, and yes. went on to form her own band, and, and often called, you know, there's a phrase, cool as Kim Deal. Ah, okay. So I think I'd, I'd have to invite her and see how cool she is in real life. Very interesting and diverse, um, <laughs> yeah. So you've got Shay, you've got um, Kim Deal, and you have um, uh, Bill, Shankly. Bill Shankly. Yeah, I don't know if them three actually would have much conversation between them. It could be difficult. Yeah. But having said that, um, I'll give you an anecdote about Che Guevara, if you like. Uh, che, when he was coming back from Africa, he'd been fighting in the Congo and defeated, and he'd, he'd retreated to Prague uh, incognito, and he was in a safe house in Prague. And one of his bodyguards was listening to the Beatles and Che went through him, gave him a, a dressing down about listening to capitalist degenerate music. And the next day, this guy came into the house and Che was like, stick on some of that capitalist music uh, that I dislike so much. So in that couple of weeks or months that he was in Prague, he took a liking, I think, to the Beatles. So that's a, a lesser known fact about Che Guevara. So he may, he may have some connection to... Is it cool as Kim Deal? So we would have to see. We'd explore that over dinner, over rice and beans and a yeah. glass of milk. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Phil Kelly, the voice of the ordinary working man and woman on the street, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for slightly over an hour of your time. Um, you give me a lot to ponder over there, but I'm still going to go back to this one thing. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be happy. I'm, I'm going to be thinking about that one as I drive back to listening to my Nathan Carter music <laughs> on the way to Tyrone. Phil, um, I'll leave a last word with you. Well, just thank you for the opportunity to have this conversation and also for playing your part in the conversations that are happening everywhere, happening in the workplace, happening you know, in politics, happening in the media. And it's important, and I think the more that we get perspectives, diverse perspectives, mm-hmm the better because this is it and again i go back to that point let's build a home that no one is evicted from this new ireland a home that no one is evicted in where we can all grow we can all be happy having an inclusive conversation one last question for you sorry about this are liverpool going to win the league this year you put me in the spot i'll say yes while shaking my head no Okay, that'll do. Listen, folks, thank you very much for um, giving up over an hour of your time to listen to myself waffle, but at least you had the benefit of Phil's wise words here. Uh, Interested, as always, to hear your feedback under the thread. Even if you don't agree with us, give us your feedback, maybe more importantly so. Thank you. Take care. Be good. Bye-bye.